And the topic for this week is the hobby of artificial life. So, Bruce, you followed the rise of the hobbyist movement. And what would you characterize as an artificial life hobbyist as being, and how do you see them emerging from the origins of artificial life? Well, definitely, you know, in, in, in some sense, artificial life has always been a hobby pursuit. I mean, I, I think of, in a way, the first artificial life programmer on a digital computer to be the fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in 1949-50, Boricelli, uh, who wrote a what he called numerical symbioorganisms on the IAS machine. And that was actually the first modern digital computer designed by John von Neumann. And, of course, he was just fiddling around. It was saying, what could we do with this machine, it was, a, it was a fast machine at the time, of course, vacuum tubes, and it had a fast secondary storage. But it was the machine on which all modern computers are based, and the first scientific application on it was Boricelli's artificial uh, symbioorganisms, or numerical symbioorganisms. And then, of course, you know, um, Chris Langton's loops on the Apple II started as sort of an evening hobby thing. So in a sense, the entire field has always always been a hobby thing, really. And and so the with the propagation of, of good, stronger computing in the 90s, we really saw kind of an explosion of that, and in the 2000s, even more so, with you know, multi-core processors and, and the ability to connect these things through the net. And that, that's what my great dream is uh, right now, is to see the hobbyists uh, connect their environments through this wonderful medium of the net and, and make a grid. Just go beyond the Garrett, the alone Garrett inventor hobbyist and start uh, building a network. Yes, certainly, certainly. And in my own thinking, I mean, what characterizes the contemporary hobbyist is really, as, as Gerald said yesterday, all the amazing work that has gone on prior and here I'm not just talking about traditional artificial life or Dawkins biology or this kind of stuff, but a wide variety of uh, computer theory, philosophy, even elements of psychology. I mean, we um, saw a post with regards to Hobbes being the origin of the term artificial life in, I guess, the 16th century. So you do get the sense that there has been a lot going on prior to the artificial life hobbyist but really, as Bruce says, the advent of contemporary computing, the accessibility of uh, home computing, but also, to a certain extent, the graphical interfaces and a lot of the subtlety. I mean, we've talked up until now about the idea of the um, human selection pressure on artificial life, the idea that it's one thing writing something like Tierra in some regard, but if you have um, some kind of embodied agent or a creature or a walker or something that you can see and interact with, this, these kind of artificial life simulations tend to, um, you know, propagate very well, particularly over the Internet. And so from this comes the contemporary artificial life hobbyist. Now, up until about 10 years ago, these individuals worked pretty remotely. Um, there were conferences, there were obviously the artificial life conferences, there were the biota conferences, but for a hobbyist, I mean, this is something that one does after hours, this is something that one does in one's spare time, there aren't substantial travel budgets associated with it. 
So really it is through the rise of, I guess, initially, um, and Eric Burton raised this point, initially um, simple bulletin boards, but then what moved into, um, you know, news, um, user groups, these kind of things, um, into mailing lists. But I think recently it has been through um, ideas like open source, things like SourceForge certainly brought me together with most of the um, artificial life contemporaries um, that I you know, started communicating with, and they found me through things like SourceForge. So I think these kind of mechanisms made the contemporary artificial life hobbyist actually want to actively communicate. I mean, I think we've always wanted to have interested users on board, but certainly when we found like-minded folk, this has generated a quite a, a lazing, which I think probably ends up with this very podcast in some regard. But, I mean, really, to me, what characterizes the artificial life hobbyist is a central project that they develop in some regard, um, but also, potentially, you now have kind of advanced users, which are effectively just as much hobbyists as those actively writing the code. I mean, certainly talking to Eric a couple of days ago, I mean, he is an active advanced user of certainly Tierra and Framsticks and and potentially Darwin at home and his knowledge of Noble Ape was phenomenal. I mean, you get the sense that these advanced users are effectively just as much hobbyists as the contemporary developers. And I think from this, a number of things, you know, are, are built up. Now, Bruce has talked about computing power, but certainly when I think of the contemporary hobbyist, and this is part of an open source narrative as well, the real luxury is time. I mean, when you look at contemporary hobbyists, particularly mature projects, they are projects that are, you know, getting up to a decade or more old, and through this luxury of time, they've developed what I'd characterize as medium-sized engineering projects, which would probably take a team of engineers maybe a year uh, to create in dedicated time, but they've had the luxury of a, a decade or more to work on their projects, and this creates a kind of maturity, which is uh, very interesting. I know, Bruce, we've, we've wrapped on this in the past, but is there anything more you want to talk about in terms of the luxury of time and the connection with the hobbyist. Oh, yeah. In, in, in a sense, what I'm trying to do with my own life, I'm actually sitting in a small building that we built here earlier this year on the farm called the Vision Hut. And it is where I, I made a tiny office in here, and it's where I'm trying to carve out the time separate from my chaotic multi-project life so that I can uh, create the mental space to do an artificial life hobbyist project for my PhD work. And it is a challenge, I'll tell you. I mean, I'm having built a building to to get away from, uh, you know, it's still trudging up the hill of this tiny little building and saying this is where I do my A-life project, uh, you know, and, and still having the time to do it. I mean, in, in the face of many, many, many interruptions in an adult life, which is what we have. Yes, I think we can probably learn from other engineering hobbies, and this is certainly something I wanted to talk about a bit later in this um, discussion, but I think the nature of having an artificial life hobby is um, what I've characterized in the past as the mental screensaver. There are a lot of problems that you encounter developing an artificial life project which you can carry around with you. You don't need your fingers on a keyboard. You don't need to be coding. Um, the examples I've used in the past uh, relate to points of transit or you know, maybe you're waiting for a meal or 
something that you can actively discuss with people. I mean, there are a number of places and locations where you could do things associated with your, your artificial life project, which aren't immediately, you know, relating to hands on a keyboard thought. And my, my general sense with regards to this is that's actually very beneficial because it means that when you, when you do have the luxury of sitting in front of a keyboard in terms of dedicated time, you've already worked out the kind of problems that you may be encountering and worked out potential solutions for that. And certainly if I could give any feedback to you, Bruce, I would think of the, uh, the vision hut as being the, the point of luxury where you put your fingers on the keyboard, but you carry around the project with you completely independent of any specific location. I mean, does that make right. sense? Yeah, it does. It actually does. And when, I, when I've been in London for the PhD workshops, I find myself scribbling on paper uh, to, designing the architecture. And it sort of it seems to be have grabbed my imagination, so I'm probably in good stead that I'm, the thing's going to get built. Uh, Peter, Peter Newman in Australia is the, my key architectural partner in this. He's read my original nerves code, which I'm basing this on, and, uh, and he's now making all these great suggestions how to change it and tie it into our open source 3D visualizer. So that at least I have, I have somebody bugging me about, okay, what are we doing now? Yeah, and I remember you... Can around. Yeah, I remember you characterizing... Um, having a, a little book where you wrote the, the nerves-related stuff, and this certainly gels very heavily with me with regards to Noble Ape. I have literally a dozen of these little notebooks at various points of the Noble Ape development. I've realized that this was a critical notebook time and carried around a notebook and made paper notes. And, I mean, I think this is something which, which resonates to your own development with, with the nerves project. Definitely. Yeah. I actually put... The notes from 1994-95, I stuck them up on the uh, on the uh, the Evil Grid site just for interest. There's this huge amount of scribbles there. Yes, I, I tried to scan and start to put together the Noble Ape related notes, particularly as I have the original manuals um, which are available on Cafe Press. I was thinking of doing a, a second release with regards to um, additions of the pages of notes actually um, in between some of the pages to show the the scribbles versus the written-out version. And I started putting them online progressively, and I think Gerald de Jong in particular was really heavily captivated by the, the, the notebook pages because it shows in a very intimate sense the level of detail and my own thoughts associated with the Noble 8 development. And I think it's something which artificial life developers are probably particularly receptive to, the um, level of detail. It's one of my... Um, frustrations with regards to Darwin at home actually is that a lot of the old Fluidium stuff and I've gone back through archive.org to try and um, reconstruct some of the texts that Gerald's written through the project um, we were talking only yesterday about this in terms of the ebbs and flows of his own development and how one maintains source code privately but I've been a strong advocate and I think the Noble 8 site shows this um, both in text form and through podcasts and various videos and things like that that you need to keep a historical archive of the, the ebbs and the flows in, in an artificial life project development because that oftentimes shows people who are starting out, um, you know, what, what mistakes have already been made and what mistakes perhaps not to make in the future. Certainly the feedback I get on a lot of that comes from people who aren't even developing artificial life projects. They have other um, either professional or hobby-related software projects 
and they utilize the um, Novalite development logs online uh, for their own specific projects. So I think this probably gels with exactly what you're saying about the EvoGrid, Bruce. Yeah, definitely. And, and I've just actually established a wiki uh, just for the EvoGrid project, and hopefully that'll be able to be capture things at the evilgrid.org slash wiki, but I'm hoping to reformat the whole site into the wiki. And finally, Tom, learn how to do wikis, um, and, and then that will allow anybody to contribute. Wikis are extraordinarily useful for these kind of things. I mean, certainly I I do all the biota lives through wiki form, um, and I find wikis very useful for um, periodic documentation, also collaborative documentation, which I think will be critical for um, the EvoGrid-related development. But I think the the other aspect of wikis is just keeping people actively involved. I know my show notes are actively tracked by a half a dozen people in the community uh, because I certainly get feedback from the show notes that I put up as I'm planning out the, the various biota lives. But I think the critical part of wikis that some people forget is the RSS feed nature of them. You can actually actively track updates. I remember when the Artificial Life and Second Life group uh, got started, they had a wiki which I actively tracked for updates. In fact, I see it in front of me still to this day, um, begging for more updates to be taken. So the RSS aspect of wikis is phenomenal in terms of actively tracking uh, when people are making updates, what they're updating, and um, you know whether one can add one's own insight into those updates. So it's certainly something to publicise as actively as the wiki itself, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, I, I need to sit at your feet and learn about the RSS part of it and publicising it. Well, now we have the space. You're a welcome visitor, as is anyone else in the biota community. So um, the move went successfully, folks, for people listening in. We now have the luxury of a library where I can actually stack my little by um, Novalate-related uh, uh, handbooks and things like that as I've written them, and potentially in the very near future, uh, Dick Gordon's uh, book, which I'm looking forward to actually holding in my hands in the near future. But another point that we mentioned is the idea of computing power, and I think this is something that um, certainly merited a lot of discussion yesterday. Uh, Gerald, Eric, and I uh, went in kind of rounds about what contemporary computing power actually means. Gerald is obviously of the uh, kind of Java high-level scripting school, uh, where this means that you know we, we are getting more access to the computing power, but also the various scripting languages and the um, uh, Java um, interpreter and these kind of things, uh, runtimes and these kind of things are ever improving. And certainly from my perspective, and particularly with regards to the folks that I know and work with at Intel and Apple, it's very much the low-level computing power which is accessible, particularly because Intel is completely dominant currently. And um, perhaps sadly, this will be continuing into the foreseeable future. I think it's an exciting architecture to develop on, but I always like to see a little bit of com uh, competition. So in terms of computing power, Bruce, are you taking a high-level view or a low-level view with regards to developing the Evo grid? I'm taking a really as low a level view as I can because the, the goal of the Evo grid deep is to simulate a huge number of particles uh, that interact. And the, the goal of the whole of the deep project is to see whether an artificial origin of life can can occur in, in a large grid-based simulation. So you need every 
blast of optimization and compute power that you can get. And, and so the entire architecture is designed as a very, very low level, almost jump table like, as efficient as possible, uh, could even be implemented in silicon, or could be run in, inside a GPU, game, uh, game processing unit type 3D cards, uh, for just, just to throw as much computing power as possible. And in fact, uh, Osher Yagdar, who is our host at SRI International, he pointed out at the meeting uh, in one of the discussions about the Evil Red movie, he was saying, your number one problem is going to be synchronization. And it's going to determine whether you can run this in a cabinet of, of high-performance computing cards that is tightly bound hardware-wise, or whether you can do it as a SETI-at-home type thing with people contributing computing power. The synchronization problem is the hardest problem. So that means that one part of the EvoGrid where something interesting has happened suddenly is split across two computers and and one's running at one rate or another and uh, you, 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 you lose all important properties because of synchronization challenges. But I mean the interesting thing from the movie is it really depends on how you model the agar or fluid environment that the various components are floating in. I mean, I can see each of those floating components being simulated on a single computer, but yet in them independently being simulated on multiple computers. I don't see that as being mutually exclusive. I think the interactions in that kind of floating environment, particularly with regards to the time cycles, actually allows for a lot more interesting behavior. I mean, the, the problem currently is that, sadly, Jeffrey Ventrella hasn't yet released... Um, Darwin Dawkins puddle um, open source yet because I mean I think uh, ultimately that kind of technology you could utilize very well with regards to um, distributing um, I don't know what you'd call them maybe organism spheres or something some method of actually assembling artificial uh, life from artificial non-life in, in orbs uh, that could be simulated on individual computers, but their interaction would be over a, a broader network. I mean, I, certainly looking at the um, video for extended periods of time led me to that thinking, particularly in terms of the ethereal nature of the matter that they're floating in. I mean, the, the critical part with regards to these kind of simulations is always where you make the approximations, and I think that was certainly something that um, gelled with me when I watched the video was the idea that the the kind of nucleotides as they were forming would be individual uh, computers or perhaps uh, processors, um, and the uh, you know as as the um, as the grid got bigger or as the grid got finer or smaller um, in terms of the number of processors being added underneath, this could add to the complexity obviously of the things that were uh, were being generated. But I mean these kind of fundamental simulation problems are really the kind of thing that the contemporary hobbyist is faced with when they start to frame their project. I think we'll see a lot more interesting uh, three-dimensional um, sea or fluid-related uh, simulations or pond-related simulations because we now have the uh, both the visualization and also the processing power to actually you know, simulate individual uh, organisms floating in fluids with quite complicated you know, light models and energy models and things like that. This moves into the idea of the kind of explorations that the contemporary artificial life hobbyist can do and really 
they are only limited in some regard by um, what their dreams and aspirations are and also to a lesser extent what they're reading. I mean, do you get a sense of the, the potential of contemporary artificial life for the hobbyist, Bruce? Can you talk a little bit on that? Well, I think, I think a lot of what's being done is sort of repeating relatively simple simulations from the past but making them, giving them more parameters. And where I see the, the hobbyists having uh, kind of, in a sense, uh, they're still kind of in an arid desert when it comes to the physics of the environment. So all the focus may be on the entities and their interactions. But I have a sense that the, or, the origin of life on Earth, if it occurred on Earth, was hugely impacted by the physics, by a massive amount of physics in the environment that pushed things around, jostled things, waves, heat, dissipation, energy going from one place to another. You needed incredibly rich physics for this to for life to occur and certainly to evolve. And so I'm I'm focusing everything in the Evo grid on doing what I call cheap and dirty reality, trying to, to, to create a fluid physics that has heat, it has dissipation, it has waves, it has solid liquid and gas elements. Really good, you know, really super uh, cheap in terms of computing power uh, analogs, uh, low-level analogs to all these physics environments. And that is maybe as far as I'm going to get in three years is to make analogs to physical environments that you might find in an ocean um, and, and have the particles within there because I, I think you're not going to see much until you have a real a run at, at physics. Yes, I remember uh, a bio to live perhaps with you and Dick Gordon both on, but I remember Dick's criticism associated with the the, uh, the obsession with physics. And this, in fact, contrasts with regards to Roy Plotnick's discussion of the Precambrian period and the need to simulate grit and these kind of things in order to get a, an accurate kind of Precambrian simulation. So I think there are a number of um, competing ideas within the community about the level of detail of physics that actively needs to be simulated. I think certainly um, one could create quite an abstract physics that was relatively simple but would certainly um, be sufficient for all that you're describing, and I think this is probably what you're looking towards. Yeah, and uh, just today in in the post came the Protocells book uh, with by Steen Rasmussen and and Bedeau and all those that group from uh, now who are now all at uh, Flint and I think many of them are at Flint in Denmark and I'm going to crack that open and that's really about uh, synthetic biology and really building up uh, doing the chemistry the bench chemistry and I see that as an analog to trying to understand the physics of of a of a chemical beaker environment for something like the Evo Grid and I'm getting my brain ready for this book. It's a very massive book. It was $70, but it's just out, and it's called sort of Analogs to Life, uh, virtual, I can't remember the subtitle, Protocells being the, the, the title. Have you met Mark Bedeau at all? I have never met Mark Bedeau. Maybe perhaps a Life 6, but didn't, wouldn't remember it. Right. Because, I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating uh, character in contemporary artificial life, particularly in the academic circles, primarily because he's a, a philosopher. He's not uh, the oh, standard kind of practitioner at all. And uh, he's very interesting. Obviously, we've interviewed him once, and I've encouraged him to come on uh, future um, Biota uh, 
uh, either chats or even a bio to live. He's, he travels um, for a large portion of his time. Um, but no, he's a fascinating fellow, and he's someone who has impacted artificial life very strongly in terms of the fact that he's um, uh, an acolyte of Langton very strongly, but he's also has a, a good philosophy background as well. In fact, uh, primarily his background is philosophy, even though he's working with uh, wet artificial life companies currently. Um, so uh, an interesting character, and certainly I'm interested in hearing whether this is a, a book worthy of the uh, entire community going out and purchasing. This makes an interesting point. Because I'm always, I mean, on a personal level, I'm interested in motivating the hobbyist community in publishing in uh, Mark Badeau's uh, journal, the Artificial Life Journal, published by MIT Press. And I've gotten, I think, maybe three or four um, effective subscriptions for folks in the community who I thought would uh, be ideally suited to being published in um, the Artificial Life Journal. Because I think a lot of what contemporary hobbyists are doing have moved in sufficiently divergent um, directions from what uh, artificial life academia is doing, then there needs to be some kind of reconnection. I'm not sure if we're going to be doing it through the likes of Dick Gordon's book or maybe through something like nature-inspired informatics or these kind of things, but there is a need for the hobbyists to link back to the academic community. I mean, certainly talking with Jamie Matthews uh, a couple of months ago with regards to artificial life 11, there really, whilst there were people there who were clearly hobbyists, there wasn't really an acknowledgement of the hobbyist community in academia. Do you want to talk a little bit about how folks who are hobbyists should look to getting published and these kind of things, Bruce? Yeah, in fact, I think it is possible for them to... Uh, I think it, it's the hobbyist community versus the the professional communities, there's always, I think, an enormous divide in a lot of fields. And for example, in the computer history field, I'm kind of in the, with the DigiBarn Museum here, I'm in the hobbyist side. I didn't even know there were journals of computing history, and there's the annals of, of, of IEEE annals of computing history. And we just published a, a, an article in uh, this month, I guess, is, is coming out. But I didn't know, and there was no outreach really by that that journal until one day a person showed up from who's from Japan and she was the editor. And this is after years and years and years of doing projects. And it's like, there's like, oh, you, you mean you actually have an academic pursuit? And I think that perhaps, perhaps a lot of hobbyists out there don't realize there is an academic side and they do have publications and they just don't even know it exists. Do you know of any hobbyists that have submitted papers and been published in that journal? Um, you, you're really testing me. I mean, I think what you have currently is people like John Klein, uh, I believe also Jeffrey uh, Ventrella. Um, there have been people that have been published in the uh, Artificial Life Journal who are now hobbyists. I'm not sure if there is any good overlap with regards to hobbyists that have been published in the journal actually as hobbyists, although I suspect maybe one of John Klein's later papers was a period of time where he was no longer um, uh, employed by an academic institution. Um, but no, I, my interest has always been um, seeing uh, just the diversity of uh, papers increase in the Artificial Life Journal. I've been a subscriber, I think, for the past three or four years now. Um, and they do tend to go in very uh, kind of tightly knotted um, circles. They do, however, occasionally uh, have critical review of contemporary philosophy, I mean, um, singularity folk and things like that. 
um, and I find that interesting. But I really would like to see um, hobbyists in the community actively start submitting papers just to get a sense, and this is something Larry Yeager said as well, just to get a sense of um, the standards and the uh, methods of writing and just how to actually introduce yourself to the uh, the academic community. It's an interesting point because I think within artificial life circles, I mean, maybe I've um, done some PR to this extent, and certainly people like Jane Lemon and people who do things with uh, Wikipedia and these kind of um, outreach methods are very familiar with the journal. Certainly, alife.org is the is the site that the journal. Um, you know, comes through in some regard. It's the International Society for Artificial Life, and they are, you get the journal subscription when you join the International Society. Um, so, I mean, I think the contemporary artificial life hobbyist community should be relatively receptive to the fact that there is a academia associated with artificial life. I think the real question is how to um, reconnect, basically, these two areas. Certainly, I get probably in the order of one or two emails per month from either hobbyists who are looking to move into academia or um, less frequently academics that are looking for uh, hobbyist projects. I know Larry Yeager in particular is doing quite a bit of evangelism now with regards to um, you know the community that he's had contact with the biotech community for a number of years in terms of his own um, spheres of influence. But I think there is still a disconnect which can only be bridged by hobbyists actively seeking publication. And I think the greatest fear, and certainly this is what motivated my silence for a number of years, was just a sense that the academic community was doing its own thing and it was quite separate and almost alien from what the hobbyist community was doing. But increasingly I have found, and this really came over the last part of my time in the UK, that a number of the artificial life academics are actually really excited by the kind of stuff, particularly with regards to visual interface and long-term maintenance of code and the kind of things that hobbyists just take for granted. These aren't necessarily the case in academia. And certainly if you look at Breve, for example, as a, a piece of code that has persisted and developed and moved into academic coursework, its ability to persist and be used by a number of different teams and a, a number of different uh, you know, educators in academia. I mean, this is a very strong suit, and I think contemporary hobbyists have that with a number of their projects. It's just a matter of actually introducing yourself in some regard to the contemporary academic community. I mean, does that resonate with, with, with your understanding, Bruce? Yeah, and I've, in a sense, by organizing artificial life-oriented conference, the Biota Conference Series, I've tried to straddle the both communities. And, and when I crafted this, this PhD research, I based it in this, this university in London at the Smart Lab because they would actually be, have a minimum of, of, I would call it, in a sense, academic or bureaucratic interference in that if I tried to do the Evil Grid project uh, out of a university here in North America, it would have to fit within the uh, grant pro programs that they have. It does, this has to advance our research on blah. The Evil Grid is way too large and visionary, and it's too broad. It's, it's too broad of a concept to probably fit that mold altogether. So I realized it's kind of a hobbyist project hybridized with an academic uh, goal, which is publication, which is a PhD dissertation, which is as big a publication as you can do personally. 
So what I'm doing actually is I've hybridized this hobby project, I crossed over into industry in that Peter Newman and Brian Norcus are working on our NASA projects, and we are doing industrial simulation for NASA and others. Brought that tool in, brought them in, and then now I'm going to go on a tour of academic institutions seeking advisors. Dick Gordon is my first advisor. Uh, Nick Herbert, a physicist here, is another advisor on the project. I'm hoping to go down to Dmitry Terzopoulos' group sometime after mid-January at UCLA in Los Angeles and do a talk about it there, and maybe Dmitry would, uh, or his group would be part of it. Maybe go see Mark Bedeau in, in, in San Diego, I believe. Where, is that where he is? Uh, I thought he was in, um, well, he's in, I think, Venice some of the time and in Portland, Oregon some of the other time. Reed College, I think, in Portland. Oh, um, gosh, but, okay. So yeah, he's, he seems to be evenly spread, but he could be he could be in other locations. I mean, he attends a lot of conferences. But the issue with regards to industry is an interesting one as well. And certainly, in my own experiences, and I think particularly with regards to the open source, but the certain level of, of computational complexity and detail in artificial life, a certain degree of elegance in some regard. I mean, this is certainly why um, Apple and Intel were very receptive to my own tinkerings and no blape, and I think there is a, a, a big corporate industry uh, perspective with regards to the things that are generated. I mean, certainly if we look at um, Rodney Brook, MIT, iRobot fame, I mean, this indicates quite clearly that you can actually produce products from um, perhaps formal academic, but also potentially hobbyist musings in artificial life, and I think that's an interesting area that, I mean, perhaps in, in parallel to academia, artificial life hobbyists should consider if they're using particularly esoteric languages or developing new languages that may solve existing problems in industry. I think certainly these kind of companies will uh, typically either make the first approach or can be prodded through um, large um, community forum-like structures. SourceForge was the way that Apple contacted me initially. So, I mean, I think all these things are, are very receptive in an industrial context as well. Just before concluding this discussion, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of metrics and what we can learn from other uh, engineering hobbies and what the idea of the hobbyist is outside of the hobbyist, the artificial life hobbyist in isolation. Because certainly in my own thinking, I have looked at other engineering hobbies to try to get a, a better understanding of the kind of metrics and issues associated with artificial life development. I think um, there are a number of engineering hobbies which are quite similar in some regard to what we do with artificial life, particularly with regards to um, constructing you know, large-scale realities and these kind of things. Um, and they tend to have metrics which are quite interesting in terms of the number of active developers and users and the creation of super projects and collaborations. But I think the real difficulty with regards to metrics, and here I'm talking not only with regards to the number of projects that need to motivate substantial collaboration, but also uh, the number of users that then kind of force a competing uh, development. It's an interesting distinction between actively developing a project and having a small number of users versus the competitive notions that certainly will be coming out of the EvoGrid shallow related discussion, I would imagine, and the effect that users have on that. I mean, certainly my own discussions with Gerald and Jeffrey and the the discussion associated with critical user feedback and how this actually motivates our own hobbyist development is relatively central, but also with regards to questions of monetization. And this 
obviously is something that artificial life developers probably never consider, but I think in the terms of the super projects, particularly if we start getting large-scale collaborations that are associated with academia or industry, there may be potential in the future, as Bruce is doing currently, to actively hire animators and uh, particularly skilled programmers to work on, on aspects. Do you see the you know the logical progression in artificial life hobbyists in terms of creating these super projects, Bruce, that may get certain degrees of monetization. Does that make sense to you? It can, as long as I think in the beginning the artificial life hobbyist has some kind of an inkling of a commercial aspect. But I think what's really important in the beginning is just pure, purely uh, uh, pursue your dream. Pursue the dream of the architecture in your head. Don't let monetization uh, color that in the beginning because you'll end up producing something that, you know, is just kind of a, an algorithm for something and you're chasing business. Uh, in, the, in the case of the EvoGrid, there's a good example if I can give that. Certainly. Somebody came up to me at a, a conference, a wonderful lady in, in, in Florida, this design conference, after I presented the EvoGrid, and she said, did you know that if you can simulate even a simple protocell, um, you have a, a, a shot down the road of, sim of simulating all the complexity of, of a cell, of a eukaryotic cell, which means, and she was, I guess, in the health field, and she said you could, you could inject a model of cancer into that, and you could then study that. If you could do a functional cell with all of its receptors and everything, you could use that as a test bed to to attack cancers and simulate cancers, and that would be of extreme interest to a lot of groups. So in a sense, I'm thinking, gee, you know, maybe that's something that will happen down the road. If you produce a particle, an interactive particle simulator where you have clumping and vesicles forming, uh, you, you, you could start to, to do that in a few years and you show that happening, and then you go to a large pharma or a cancer research in, institute and say, these vesicles are forming. They're just they're kind of like protocells, and maybe it will lead one day to a functional cell model if we go in and actually design it and start getting funding for cancer research. You just never know. Certainly, certainly. I think I guess what I was considering in terms of monetization is this abstract idea where the artist moves from being the simple painter to the painter who not necessarily paints for money but may paint for um, publication that then brings back, you know, a certain degree of income or these kind of things. I mean, I think there are so many aspects from uh, the standard engineering hobby perspective that could yield monetization. A lot of that relates to uh, user numbers but also some kind of competitive influence. I mean, I think if I look at my, my friends who are um, relatively successful artists, there is a kind of uh, respect with their community. However, there is an element of uh, competitiveness and certainly uh, bringing more of um, certain aspects of their art forward. So I think there are a number of, uh, as you've outlined within industry, but also with academia, but also this idea that there is intrinsic, potentially artistic value here. Uh, Joseph Nekvatel obviously springs to mind from his recent correspondence. I mean, I think there are a number of possibilities with regards to how a hobbyist could consider monetizing their, monetizing their uh, development, but it may not, as, it's, as you say, it may not present itself in, 
in any possible means for a number of years, and it may come through completely esoteric uh, ways even when it does present itself. But with two minutes remaining, Bruce, I'd, I'd like to thank you very much for the opportunity once again to jam with you this evening. Uh, the topic in two Fridays' time, 8 p.m. Pacific, Project Integration and Communication. Do you know where you'll be placed on December 12th? I should be here on the farm in California. Terrific. So I look forward to talking to you in, in greater detail with regards to the, the lesser Evo grid, the Evo grid shallow, and the potential for artificial life developers to, to collaborate and communicate in the future. Thanks very much for chatting this evening, Bruce. My pleasure, Tom.